Hello and welcome to another Jaffa Geeks for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is... Brother Tilt Eraser. Down with him. Before we proceed any further, brother, I'd like to call something to attention. Some business outstanding from last week. Splatters! Michael Ripper in What a Crazy World, playing a character called The Common Man. We mentioned that, we said maybe he's there to encourage the audience to have some sympathy, so it's not just a different person who's victimised by Marty Wilde every time. We get to feel a little bit for him. And also last week, after we'd recorded it, I watched the 1988 film of A Man for All Seasons with Charlton Heston. And in that... There is the common man. He's the first character who speaks to us and says, in this, you'll see me as a boatman and a jailer and an executioner. And that character was created precisely for that effect, so that your sympathy wasn't just with the titled important characters who are taking big decisions, but every time we see somebody just doing their job, it's the same person. And in this particular production, it was Roy Kinnear and the stage version of A Man for All Seasons, I think, is circa 1960, so just before the stage version of What a Crazy World, so I don't doubt it's a deliberate lift of the idea. Just in case any of you are shouting at your MP3 players last week saying, you uncultured yobs! Anyway, never mind about all that. We're going to get onto the main order of business, and that is that we're talking about industrial action on British television. We're going to be talking about mainly late 60s to late 80s, thereabouts. Now, a couple of house rules, first of all, about this because this is a pet project of mine, but to try and keep this sort of manageable in terms of an hour-long podcast, we had to sort of basically sort of set some guidelines and some parameters and so on. So we're not really going to be talking about the politics of this at all. Our principal purpose here today is to talk about the impact on the viewer. So we want to look at, once a strike's been called, what kind of things arrive on your screen? What kind of things don't arrive on your screen? What are all these strange terms mean such as blackout when there's actually a program going out even if it's not necessarily one that you expected what are the ins and outs of all of this we're going to look into all of that over the next hour or so now first up it's going to be plenty of different sources that we're going to suggest that you have a browse at if you're interested in this particular topic but the first one to mention is the superb trans diffusion now i can't really believe there's going to be anybody listening to the show who doesn't already have trans diffusion bookmarked but if you don't google it have a look. There's a wealth of information on there about pretty much every single aspect of television presentation. And there are some excellent articles on the TBS site with regard to industrial action on ITV, for example. I think probably most of what we're talking about today is going to relate to ITV, but there's going to be some BBC in there as well. So this is a huge oversimplification, but this is really for the benefit of maybe anybody under 30 who perhaps hasn't seen any of this firsthand. British trade unions... They were legalised in the UK in 1871. They've reached their peak in terms of membership and influence during the post-war consensus. So by and large, we're talking about 1945 to 1979, although that is an oversimplification to an extent. Trade unions at this time, they are active in pretty much all workplaces, not just public sector, but private sector as well. Union reps have meetings at Downing Street. They play a role in the planning of industrial matters and so on. And there's three key bits of information to bear in mind when it comes to the industrial action we're going to be talking about today. First of all, at this time, unions do not necessarily need to call a ballot in order to call strike action. So you can have things like lightning strikes and so on. Although a lot of the unions had agreements with management 
to have at least a certain period of notice, for example, but such agreements were quite often loose between union and management. Also, a lot of unions operate what's called a closed shop, and a closed shop is where the employer agrees only to hire union members. And so if you go to work for a particular TV station, you have to join the union in order to be employed and continue your employment. And also during this time, sympathy strikes are permitted. So if, for example, and we'll give you the key for this in a minute, but if the ACTT goes out and strike, the NUJ may come out in support of the dispute. So by and large, if we're talking about the ACTT, then we're talking about ITV. They were formed in 1933. Originally, they were Sydney technicians. And then in 1955, they added ITV technicians to the remit and so expanded their scope. If we're talking about the ABS, then the chances are we're talking about BBC, that's the Association of Broadcasting Staffs. Just to confuse matters further, they also cover the people who are working on the transmitters for the IBA. So you might occasionally hear us refer to the ABS in terms of ITV programmes and so on. And then later on down the line, the ABS, that eventually becomes Beta, and then BEC2 is formed as a merger between Beta and the ACTT. And finally, of course, is the National Union of Journalists, which was formed in 1907 and, of course, is still around today. So what we're going to look at today is a handful of notable disputes. We're going to look at exactly what the impact was on the viewer. So I've decided to you're going to be the viewer in question. Okay, I am the common man. You are, exactly. We're going to put you in your comfy chair. So choose the comfiest chair in the house. And what's your television set of choice? Because we're going to start in 1968, so describe the model that you've got. I'm not an expert. I just, the man in the shop said it was a good one. Okay, let's say Grundig. You've got Grundig, and it's a good one, and it's a 20-inch set. And you've got an ITV2 button that you're not going to need to use for another 14 years. But 1968, like we say, you're already in a state of what I might call flux because you've heard all these rumours about the new ITV that's coming along and how everything's going to change and you know there'll be no more free to one and crossroads we will shun. <laughs> On Saturday nights, you're just going to get sort of weird avant-garde, highfalutin nonsense where previously you had expected light entertainment. So you better get used to it. It all depends where I live as well. You live in London for the purposes of this. If I live in Yorkshire... For some reason, Granada and ABC are going away. I'm getting one seven-day provider. If I live in Wales, then I'm just a nervous wreck because TWW went away early and then it was independent television service Wales and Western to Lady Cymru and now it's Harlech and Harlech are trying to hypnotise me. (laughs) So it's a time when the viewers' habits are being changed for them. We have the situation where there's a set of agreements on paying conditions that have been in place since November 64. Now, they've expired in June of 67, but there's been an interim agreement which expires on the 29th of July 1968. I suspect that that date wasn't chosen by accident. So, interim agreement between whom and whom and why and what over? Okay, so we have an interim agreement between the television companies and the unions, principally the ACTT, with regard to pay and conditions. We have now got a situation where a new load of companies are coming in. They are already in negotiations with staff about possibly keeping them on, or maybe in the case of a station such as ATV, for example, possibly rerouting them up to the Midlands. And meanwhile, we've got this mass series of agreements that are all going to expire the same week that the new companies are going to go on the air. And so what we end up with is that a series of disagreements 
basically snowballs. And when the new companies come on the air, we have industrial action affecting Thames. So they go off the air, middle of the first evening, whilst Tommy Cooper's on. We've got London Weekend, which gets about 30 seconds into its opening evening and is then blacked. We have difficulties elsewhere on the network, which are affecting all of the network. Permission to dumb it down, sir. Oh, wait, come on. Wait, wait, wait. You, you want to take all that, filter it, and then come out with a tabloid version. Come on. Think of Coronation Street, made by Granada. When you're in Anglia land and you're watching Coronation Street, it's being played out by Granada. Granada did not send a copy to Anglia to play out. So if the technicians walk out at Granada, there's no Coronation Street until they come back, which happened more than once. So here you are in your armchair. You don't know where you are with ITV because half the companies have changed. The programmes are all different. And now you're getting blank screens for an undue amount of time. So that first weekend, for example, Frost on Sunday has a sort of let's do the show right here quality about it. It goes out an hour and 40 minutes late. It is staged in the World of Sports studio. David Frost, as it pains to point out, that one of the unions that normally would have been involved was in dispute. The other unions were not. Therefore, we've got management manning the cameras and so on. It's all a bit shambolic. But as he says at the end of the show, hopefully we'll be back to normal next week, although I doubt we'll enjoy it as much. And I think that there's a little bit in there about why I'm so interested in this topic, and I suspect probably why it appeals to a lot of people, is that there's something nice about a change from the norm, and also about the challenge of putting on a show where the normal facilities are not there. It's a weird little thing, because on the one hand, we're talking about people withdrawing their labour because... They want more money, they want better working conditions, or they don't want to lose their jobs. Depending on the situation, depending how far you want to go with things, we are talking about people's livelihoods. Depends whether you're on the side of management or workers or want them to compromise. That's the serious side of this. But if you're not part of that, yes, industrial action just seems like a wee holiday that comes from nowhere. Literally, if it was a cheat to strike, you got a day off, or more than one day off. No school today recent transport strikes in London and people talk about going to work by barge, things like that. So it's odd. On the one hand, we can all have a good giggle. On the other hand, it's people's jobs. It's how they pay for their stuff. That's something to keep in the back of your mind. Now, you've got to put a massive downer on this. So let me just explain once again. We're not really talking about the politics of this today. We're talking about the impact on the viewer. There's many, many sources if you want to get into the rights and wrongs of each individual dispute. It's far, far too big a topic for us to discuss here. But like I say, Transfusion, great source. There's other ones that we'll mention as time goes on. Another really, really good source for dates and background to these disputes is the Coronation Street wiki site, Coripedia. Now, you introduced me to this. It's marvellous, isn't it? The write-up they have of the colour strike is fantastic, and you can find out all kinds of little details about when each individual ITV franchise went to colour. They've got the dates. They're pretty good as a resource for the 1979 strike. Somebody there has really done their homework and shared it. I just want to go back to one thing you said, though, because you're saying World of Sport. That's one of the obvious unintentional holidays. There was a Blue Peter which was coming from a set from Doctor Who in the mid-70s. There's that strange Top of the Pops where it's pretending to be in Noel's office. Are you suggesting that wasn't Noel's office? 
It might well have been, but it sure as hell wasn't a normal Top of the Pop set. There's no audience. Things have changed. So, going back to 68, the upshot of all this is that for the bulk of August 1968, you have this curious independent television service, which is going to run in place of your local franchise holder. To quote the fabulous Corypedia, Cans of film and videotape for programmes were taken from the regional television offices and shipped to London by managers or non-union workers to get them past the picket lines outside the Foley Street building. Now, we have some really lovely, mundane little issues which come into play here. These are described on the Transdiffusion website. For example, the first day of the dispute, they have to arrange how they're going to start the station. So what sort of tuning signal they're going to use. I think by the second day they used the ITA London signal and slide, which meant that people were phoning in saying, I think I'm getting the wrong ITV region because it says London here. So on the third day, they eventually make up one which simply says ITA. They have a clock which is borrowed from ABC in Teddington and the ABC symbol has been partially covered with masking tape. He's still got a little bit of white... (laughs) (laughs) just on the side (laughs) hasn't quite happened has it these little mundane details are fascinating thanks to a fabulous recreation that's on the transfusion site we can see that the opening slide on the independent television service because they're not even using the experiment itv is independent television the slide says all commercials are being transmitted on the national network and we apologize if certain products are not available in your area that lovely and quaint what are you thinking then mr common man when you're sitting here watching all this you're being served more common wise when you expected frost on sunday you are having to sometimes get adverts for products that you can't get in your area so there's a sort of exotic feel about it as well from that point of view but yes depending how simple I am in my tastes and understanding of the mechanics of television. There is this thought that's like, so is this it now? Is this what's going to happen on the third button on my television from now on? And of course, also, there isn't that time for me to get into the habit. I might get out of the habit of clicking onto that button because they're not showing their new shows for their autumn season. They're having to show whatever they can scrape together. I've seen this Morecambe and Wise, and besides Morecambe and Wise... They're doing new stuff on the BBC and in colour. Hang on a minute, you didn't tell me that set that you've got there was colour. I don't, but my sister-in-law got to hers <laughs> once a week. So when we were talking about London Weekend Television in 1968, we did that show. It was one of the things we mentioned. Yeah, One thing is, they're too arty, they're too weird. Or oh, how true is that? Might be an exaggeration, but the other thing is, is people do not get into the habit at the vital time. They, they're suddenly used to staying with the BBC for Saturday night, certainly. So obviously the dispute is resolved towards the end of August and normality resumes. There's a nice little instance in May and June of 1970 when Granada is affected by a dispute, which means that there are no programmes going out at all from Granada. Now, obviously, this means no Coronation Street for anybody. But there are also little side effects in this instance. So, for example, the World Cup is going on. That means that certain matches are available on BBC and ITV, sometimes duplicated, as was the norm back then, but sometimes not. So if you're in the Granada area and you are an obsessive World Cup viewer, then there will be some matches that are just not available to you. The election in June of 1970 
course, Prime Minister's constituency, soon to be the outgoing Prime Minister, Howard Wilson, his constituency was in Highton, Liverpool. And of course, that's Granada land. So ITV had no pictures from Harold Wilson's count in Highton and had to have the result relayed to them by a reporter by telephone, for example. There are all manner of little details like this which tend to come out of these disputes. And then we've got a biggie, and probably fair to say the one which has had the longest lasting effect as far as these kind of things are concerned. November 1970, there's been officially colour television for one year from this point onwards, although of course it was going into test transmissions from 67 onwards. And there's been an interim agreement for a year between the union and management on the use of colour equipment. This has now expired without a resolution, and so from November 1970 through until February 71, not only does ITV stop making programmes in colour, go back to black and white, but also everything that's going out on ITV is now going out on black and white, regardless of whether it was actually a colour programme that's been produced. Now, I would imagine that yourself, you've, by this point, your sister-in-law has convinced you to get a colour set, and you did, and it's, you know, it's not cheap. The, the amount that you're paying to DER every week, it's, you know, it's, it's enough. And now you're only getting like two thirds of your service. What's going on? Remember my example earlier? There had been that mini collar strike at Granada. No Coronation Street for three weeks. When they came back, they had to repeat the Coronation Street that had been the last one out so that everybody could catch up in their heads before they could continue. So yes, if you're one of those people who visits, is it called Network On Air now? The official site of Network DVD. And you like buying their stuff. Maybe you only wait for the sales. In which case, you're part of the problem, man. Or maybe you're a loyal customer. Dare one for things you really care about. Anyway, what I'm saying is, if you've got a lot of DVDs from Network, if you've got a lot of old ITV shows on DVD, you will have come up against this time and time and time again. Coronation Street, including the one where Valerie Barlow is electrocuted. Public Eye. Budgie. First four episodes of Budgie, they're in black and white. And heartbreaking for me... The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader, the second series, was meant to be in colour. Only two episodes were made in colour. So yes, it, it is an oddity. And the reason that I mentioned this is the dispute, which has probably had the longest lasting effect, is because, of course, this is permanent. This is not something that's going to rectify itself after February 71. So if you are, for example, watching A Family at War on the fabulous Talking Pictures TV just now, if you're watching On the Buses on ITV3, or if you're watching Upstairs Downstairs on ITV Encore, you're going to notice that eventually your colour episodes are going to stop and you're going to go back to black and white for a time. And I think you said to me, Tilt, that LWT did go back and reshoot the first episode of Upstairs Downstairs in colour. Reshot it in colour with a different ending so that it would lead directly into the next colour episode, leapfrogging over seven or eight black and white ones. I see. Because, of course, this was affecting international sales. And... Funnily enough, the Upstairs Downstairs episodes, which ITV had sold to America, they actually did not sell the black and white episodes to PBS in the States until 1988. Yeah, it's, it's certainly the one which the ramifications of that are still being felt today. And I've got the Doctor on the Box set, the Fabulous Network DVD collection up there. And yeah, eventually, Buddy Evans has graduated, but suddenly he's gone back to black and white all of a sudden. In fact, he didn't go back to black and white because he was never in black and white in the first place. It was always a colour show. There are two episodes of Coronation Street. Mainly, the studio sessions are after the strike. The advanced filming is during the strike. 
So color videotape, and then when they go outside, it's black and white outside. <laughs> now, I really wish that they'd actually done like the filming for one person in the two-way conversation they done the film for one person in black and white then they reshot or they shot like the other end of the conversation in color it would make some others do happen with jessica on film and everybody else on vt it would make that look normal <laughs> our next dispute is not really a television dispute it's a bit of an oddity this one we're going to talk about the three day week now i was hesitant to put this in at first because i was actually thinking we could probably do an entire jaffa cakes about the three day week at some point but it would be a bit of an omission to to overlook this so I'm sure everybody's familiar with the, the bits and pieces, but... I'm not. To... It's oh, just something you? that I... You just you say, The three-day week. Remember the three-day week? And I never really bothered to find out what exactly that meant. It was just some sort of code word for disruption of your everyday life. Okay, so ins and outs, there is a dispute involving the minors, which is ongoing. And the Prime Minister Edward Heath on, I think, the 13th of December... 1973, you like your Honto stuff, so I'm going to have to send you a copy of this. you got to watch this. Prime Minister comes on to the TV that evening and says, we are asking you to cut back to the absolute minimum the use of electricity for heating and for other purposes in your homes. Production plants and so on, which are using electricity all the time, they're going to be asked to cut back their usage to two-thirds of the norm, and otherwise, companies are going to be restricted to three days of power, principal electricity per week from the beginning of January 74. I sent you an advert from the Glasgow Evening Times, which was the electricity company. And it was basically saying, you know, when we get into the new year, there may be power cuts. And here is the rotor, so to speak. So they divvied up the whole sort of area into sections and said, you may get a power cut in this particular evening. Power will come back on your area the following night. Elsewhere, it may be off and so on and so on. Now, when it comes to television, the arrangement was quite austere. From the following Monday, the 17th of December, all television, and there are only three channels at this point, of course, have to close down in the UK at half past ten. And in practice, to prevent power surges when the TV goes off, everybody going off to bottle the kettle and so on, BBC and ITV operate uh, rota. So one channel will go off at 10.20, the other one will go off at half past 10, and then they alternate the following evening and so on and so on. Now, I would love to have been around at this period of time. I've got to be absolutely honest about this. There's a lovely quote from Adrian Mole, and he's talking about there being a, a water company strike. And he describes his father going back and forth and filling up canisters full of water to sort of stock up. And he says he was whistling a happy tune as he was doing it. He loves a crisis. Do you know what? I think I would have absolutely loved a three-day week. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of it. And of course, it had an effect on people's lives and so on. But the idea that people would be sort of all huddled in one room, maybe by candlelight and so on. There's a really good Till Death is Do Part episode, which is entirely about the topic of the power cuts and so on. Yeah, as if that wasn't a kick in the teeth enough. If the power goes back on at half past ten, you've missed the evening's TV. There's no more for you to watch. Is it true that the UK has a small baby boom in the mid-70s as a result of this? That is absolutely true, yes. See, these decisions, they have you know ramifications and so on. So in practice, this means that not just programmes that were going to go out after half past ten, but anything that would have been going over that point. So if something was scheduled for ten o'clock and ran until eleven, that gets dropped. 
there are some very strange instances of cartoons going out just to fill the time if the film that was on finished at 10 past 10, for example. In practice, this meant that the companies had to rejig the entire schedule, not just the one after half past 10, because if there were popular programs that were going to go out when about 10 o'clock or so, they'd be then rescheduled for an earlier time slot later on in the week. So this caused a huge amount of disruption, obviously. If you're having a look at things such as Christmas Radio Times, the information that's in the Christmas Radio Times is by and large incorrect for really anything beyond the early evening because everything's been rejigged. Exceptions were made for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day and Hogmanay. So they're safe. But anything else, tough luck. This gets lifted when Heath calls the election in February 74. The restrictions are lifted then. So it was only for a relatively brief period of time. But here's where it becomes personal. I don't mean in a sort of dirty Harry sense. (laughs) Edward Heath is marked for death and out for justice. (laughs) Who runs the country? Certificate X. (laughs) Me and my family, we were moving house in 1986. And... As you do, we're moving the furniture and what have you. And, you know, I, I mean, I, d- I don't really understand why this was necessarily the case. But, you know, when people have newspaper underneath carpet, presumably there was a reason for that. <laughs> yes, my family did that too. Yeah. So I stumble across this sheet from the Herald and it's TV listings. And it's from the period of the three-day week. But I know nothing of the three-day week. So I'm just looking at these TV listings and it all says that TV closes down at half past ten. So for ages, I actually thought this was the norm. I thought this was just how things worked. It was like, because I knew that at some point there wasn't breakfast TV. I knew there wasn't 24-hour TV because you know, there wasn't even 24-hour TV then. So yeah, these things were gradually introduced. And I just sort of thought that was the norm. TV went off at half past 10. That's what you did. And then discovered, of course, later on that this was nonsense. We've talked a fair amount so far about the impact that some of these disputes had on the viewer. But we really should also just elaborate a little bit more on some of the little foibles, the little idiosyncrasies that occur. So, for example, there was an instance of a play called Kate by Yorkshire Television that Phyllis Calvert and Colin Welland. And this was going out in 1971. Six minutes before the end of the play, the plugs were pulled. And instead was a sign that was written in chalk and it read, Yorkshire Television have threatened to sack us, we are going out on strike. This was rapidly replaced, of course, with a more sort of traditional <laughs> caption. Nobody got to see the end of the play. And people were ringing up the ITV company, using the phone number on TV Times and saying, what happened? There is a continuity announcer around these parts called Tony Curry. And he used to be on STV and he's now on BBC Scotland. I just wanted to quote one little piece that he'd written. And this was principally about the 1979 strike that we're going to come on to shortly. But I thought this is worth mentioning directly. So when we talk about programmes being blacked out, then quite often this isn't necessarily the case. So as you were saying, Coronation Street is due to come from Granada, people in Granada are on the strike, then quite often the local ITV company will substitute it for something else. But that's not always the case. As Tony Curry explained on a site called TV Forum, he mentioned that in the case of the 79 dispute, the ACTT shop had literally blacked the programs that failed to appear from the network. So in a set of circumstances where a program was due to come down the line from, say, ATV in the Midlands, and it didn't, the transmission controller would be instructed by the shop steward to fade to black for the duration of the planned program, not to do anything else like show a standby or a caption. Now, he then went on to say that 
similar to, you know about this, Till, of course, if you have dead air on the radio, eventually emergency tape cuts in because you can't have dead air on the radio because, you know, that's the, the worst crime of a lot. So if you have a prolonged period of silence, then uh, a backup tape will kick in. If you had 30 seconds of black screen on television at this time, then the IBA, their local transmitter, would take over and they would produce their apology caption. It was interesting actually to hear an explanation there as to sometimes programs can literally be blacked. You're not even permitted to say that there is a dispute and explain the reason why your program is not on the screen. So, we'll come back to 79 in a moment, but first of all, Christmas 1978. What are your memories of Christmas 78, Till? I know what you want me to say, but I don't remember it. Christmas 78, there is the threat in certain areas of there being no television whatsoever. So, there is a dispute in the Yorkshire area, Yorkshire TV, which does go ahead, which means that there was no ITV in the Yorkshire area over this period of time. There was also the threat of strike action at STV in Kilcadden's, which would have affected the whole of central Scotland. Meanwhile, most people's attention is on the BBC. So at this time, there is what's known as a government pay policy. And this is an initiative by Prime Minister at the time, Jim Callaghan, to get the wage demands under control. This is, of course, at the period of the winter of discontent, so basically the worst disruption that the country had faced in terms of industrial unease. Now, this has affected overtime on the BBC, so we're sort of in the same sort of period as we were in 73, where you've got early close downs because certain programmes can't run after, say, 11 o'clock at night. But by the end of that week, the ABS members are out on strike and there are no television programmes going out. Now, this threat was considered so serious that Bill Cotton had actually put out a statement to say that if it comes to it, the management will go in on Christmas Day and man the machines themselves. There will be programmes going out on BBC television over Christmas, come what may. I believe that he actually says in his autobiography that they had prepared two schedules for this because, of course, anything that was going to go out on Christmas Day was going to be in the can. There was going to be no live material of any kind. And programmes that were already in production like the aforementioned Top of the Pops, for example, if they couldn't be finished, then they weren't going to be going out either. So this then leads us to a situation where programmes such as Sale of the Century and Survival Special are getting phenomenally good ratings on ITV because there's nothing else to watch. Come on then, Mr Common Man, how do you feel about this? You've got ITV on your set. I think by 1978 you've probably upgraded to one of those clickers where it's got like the big wire coming out of it and goes into the back of the TV so you don't have to get up off your set in order to change channel. But when it comes to this particular evening, you have no use of this button. Yes. Maybe that's part of why I think that the late 70s is Imperial Phase BBC. Because certainly in the Yorkshire area <laughs> over Christmas, it was BBC or nothing. We get to a stage as Christmas Day 78 approaches and by the way, Morecambe and Wise have moved to ITV, so as far as you're concerned in the Yorkshire area, there's no Morecambe and Wise Christmas special for you, pal. You're going to be watching Warren Oates playing Rooster Cogburn in a made-for-TV sequel to True Grit, whether you like it or not. As Christmas Day approaches, the Evening Times interviews local celebrities and says to them, there might not be any TV on over Christmas. How on earth will you cope? Now, for a TV addict such as myself, I actually found these responses quite disappointing. For example, we have got, say, the Lord Provost of Glasgow, and he says, we like to have a family sing-song at Christmas, and the television gets pushed aside to give us all more room for the party. I won't be disappointed by a blackout at all. 
the chairman of the Scottish Development Agency. Every year I go up north for a family gathering and there is no television there anyway. We go out of doors for a while and play family card games with the kids in the evening or listen to records. However, all is not lost. Glenn Michael. Hey. Glenn Michael says, I am a television addict. I sit and watch until the little light disappears in the middle. I'll miss the television, but I suppose it will give me the opportunity to do something healthy like take a good long walk in the country. And as an addendum to our pantomime special, which is available now in the archives, Chaff Kicks Approved, available at podnose.com, Jimmy Logan says, we have two shows at the King's on Christmas Day. So I'll be having Christmas dinner on Sunday. Christmas is always family reunion time. We have such a lot to talk about. We would rarely watch TV. That completely passed me by, the idea that you'd have pantomimes on Christmas Day itself. Yes. Well, that's Scotland, isn't it? That's true. That's true. The newspapers were still being published up until 72 on Christmas Day. Any road up. So, Friday the 22nd of December, and the ABS now calls out the members working in radio. So we have this bizarre situation one of a kind, never happened before since, of Wonderful Radio 10, where all the networks collapse into one. And we have, for example, John Dunn, who hands over to Kid Jensen, who hands over to Cormac Rigby of Radio 3. And basically the entire evening is just like a huge Alan Friedman anything goes type affair. This is fabulous. This, this does not make you think about, like, before you know it, you're going to have Dactari on the TV. This is brilliant. Where's it going to end? I mean, eventually the transmitter's going to go off and they actually just send out the programmes on cassette or something like that. People talk about those times and how half the country watching Morecambe Wise, that sense of everybody watching everything together. And I know Gary would like that. Enforced by law, maybe six times a year, all media blacks out except for one outlet and everybody has to <laughs> experience it. Well, I maintain that the part of political broadcast should still go out at the same time and they should be mandatory across all channels. Yes, even Comedy Central plus one. Followed by Benny Hill and David Batley as waiters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the end result was Christmas was not cancelled, except if you live in Yorkshire. Well, we still had BBC. One nice little side effect of this was that Yorkshire Television actually put out a good deal of the Christmas programming on the last weekend of January. I would like to think, and I'm relying on yourself to be able to provide evidence of this, I'd love to think that the local supermarkets actually took advantage of this and started selling like turkeys and Christmas crackers <laughs> and what have you, and people actually staged like an alternative Christmas day when they could watch Diamonds of Forever and Eric and Ernie and what have you. Wouldn't that be fabulous? Actually, they should have held them back until July. Do Christmas in July. I don't think television was all that central to people's lives in 78. I have no memory of there being an extra Christmas at the beginning of 79. No, it did happen. Trust me, I've seen the listings. If it sounds like I'm not really into this and not really enthusiastic, there is a reason. It's 1978, and let's face it, who cares about 1978? The Citizen Kane, the Gone with the Wind, the Sergeant Pepper of industrial action is coming up in 1979. The (laughs) television strike, 1979. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you probably know what the, I think still, highest rated story from Doctor Who is, which is City of Death, which had something like 16 million viewers. And if you're curious, you'll know why. Because there was no ITV. There was no real competition against it. ITV was blacked out from 
part of August, into the beginning of October, no ITV in September. I have a friend who was born, I think, mid to late 60s, and for any reason, in his presence, used the phrase, welcome home. He would immediately go, welcome, welcome, welcome home to ITV. It burned into his brain. Obviously, that jingle was used for a couple of weeks, but only a couple of weeks in 79. But it had obviously had an impact on him. (laughs) ITV gone away so long that they can actually come up with a new jingle, a new piece of music. It becomes part of their autumn program package. So in some ways, it gives them a strange boost. In other ways, some shows suffer. So it was recorded by the Mike Sams singers, incidentally, that jingle, and produced when they actually had an inkling as to when the strike was going to end. But without going into too much detail, we'll quote the fabulous Corypedia again. 1979, the annual inflation rate was 13.4%. The ITV companies made a 9% payoff for the unions were requesting 25%. There's an excellent TV forum called the Mausoleum Club. And if you have a look on the old version of the forum, when this was enjoying its 30th anniversary, August 2009, there is a really, really detailed thread on the old Muslim club forum which actually lays out everything that happened with this dispute from the very first section of the dispute at Thames on the Monday evening and then how that spread throughout the rest of the country and eventually on Friday that was crunch time. A couple of things happened before then. One was that Thames TV was actually networking American bought-in series at this time and it was one of those ones that runs before and after News at 10. So consequently when the engineers went on strike (laughs) during News at 10, the other companies had to come back and say, yeah, second part of that uh, bestsellers you were watching not happening. I don't know what the cliffhanger was at 10 o'clock, but you know, just use your imagination. And then probably one of my favourite things of all when it comes to this particular topic and tragically this didn't happen, but they got ever so close. This is from The Telegraph. At Harlech, members of the ACTT at the company's Cardiff studios refused to accept their suspension and staged a sit-in, planning to put out their own news bulletin. The company's managing director invoked a special emergency procedure whereby an ITV company can request to be disconnected from the transmitter and the programme's taken off the air. Screens went blank after the ITV news bulletin had been transmitted and before the unofficial news could be transmitted. This is not just some nonsense that somebody's got garbled. There is actually footage, it's on the ITN archive, ITN source website, of the technicians sat in the car park at Harley. And they've got these cameras in front of them and they are basically rehearsing the unofficial news bulletin. They've got desks. Yes, yeah, it's all there. How would that have worked? I mean, what would it have been like? I mean, it effectively would have been sort of like pirate television. Yeah, so so like I said, this this didn't happen, but it, it, it came close. I think probably that the one tragic error was in having a rehearsal in the car park with ITN people <laughs> filming it, which then sort of, you know, management got wind of it. Yeah, they, they should have just slipped something in. Do the Yorkshire business, you know, just have it written up in chalk. You know, that got on the air. So back to Tony Curry again, because on the TV forum website, he explained what was going on at STV on the Friday afternoon. This is a lovely little anecdote. He mentions that STV was due to take a film which was being networked by Yorkshire TV. To quote, About 10 minutes to go and the senior management of STV were in the master control room arguing loudly with the transmission controller and the ACTT shop steward. At one point the director of programmes and the transmission controller were arguing about what I was supposed to say. 
Over the talk back, I said, gentlemen, you will know what I've said when you've heard me say it on air. He explains that he can see the film already having been threaded at YTV. And what do you call that thing till when like the numbers count down at the beginning of a film? What's the business? You know, leader Ten, nine, eight. So he explained that if the Ward 6 had stayed on the screen and didn't move, then they knew that this film was not coming down the line. And that's ultimately exactly what happens. And his sign-off was, well, I'm afraid that due to an industrial dispute, we're unable to bring you the film. It's a lovely sunny day outside, so I suggest you go and enjoy it now, and we'll be back at 5.15 for Crossroads. Crossroads didn't transpire, and STV, along with the rest of the network, was off for 11 weeks. A couple of other things about this. One, it's not just you and I that actually would have enjoyed the caption. The caption basically was, there will be no programmes today, we'll bring more information when we can, and some classical music. Apparently they scored audience figures as high as 1 million viewers whilst the caption was on. Also, Channel Television, the channel I owns, they did not go off the air because being such a small station, they had their own arrangement with the ACTT because any prolonged period off the air would have been potentially you know, fatal for the company. So they actually continued and the Channel TV listings appear in the Daily Mail throughout the whole of the UK. They're basically saying Channel TV is ITV, so here's what's on. Channel Television officially didn't have any VT facilities, so all the programmes that they put out had to be on 60mm film. Officially? Yeah, we know about that, but we're not going to go into pneumatics here. So they stock up on items such as, for example, the New Avengers. Quite a bit of New Avengers goes out. They have got... Items such as Columbo, they've got some very old films, they extend their local news to an hour every evening, and they actually received letters congratulating them on the superb service. The ratings went up during this period. There's going to be another instance of that happening later on, by the way. Till, when did ITV come back on the air? And I'm setting you up for a fall here, so just give the correct inverted commas answer. October 1979. Mm-hmm. Specifically, October the twenty fourth at five forty five p.m. Oh, is it okay? Wrong. On the day itself, when ITV was due to reappear, somebody at Thames TV pressed the wrong button, and they ended up broadcasting the face of a supervisor by the name of Laurie Baker, who was sat in the announcer's chair whilst they were fiddling with the buttons and cables and so on. And so this guy actually was broadcast for fifteen seconds on the network. At 12.47pm, in case you were wondering. Also, Westwood TV actually came on air earlier. Westwood Diary returned a couple of days previously, apparently with very poor lighting, so we are told. But yes, the Mike Sam Singers entertained us on the evening itself. was the 24th of October, and the first few days the programming was networked, so you're back to your old independent television service again. The Thames Clock rebranded ITV. Yes, indeed. And this time they actually got the, the gaffer tape correct, so you couldn't see any of the Thames logo on it at all. And looking at the menu for that first night back, that's a fantastic schedule. I could kick back, just watch that and let that drift by. And of course, the day after as well, Spartacus on the afternoon. They're trying to make an impact, obviously. They're trying to get people back in. And what better way to get people watching the station again with two doses of three to one in three days? If you'd been a bit older and you'd been like following the strike, like really closely, would you actually have been slightly disappointed when it came back on? Or would 11 weeks have been enough? I think, yeah, 11 weeks is enough. There's a novelty in having it back. Clearly, some people 
thought it was sufficient novelty. Because I think there are at least two recordings out there in the wild of the startup for when they come back, home recordings. Somebody's kept that. Somebody in Yorkshire did it. Somebody in Southern did it as well. They announced at the weekend that ITV would be back midweek. And this gave them enough time at Thames to be able to get together many of the stars of the autumn lineup, uh, who were then wearing specially made sweatshirts saying, We're back. And you can actually search this on Google. I think it's Getty Images. And you've got Lionel Blair and Ernie Wise and Brian Murphy and Andrew Gardner. All manner of people. And they've all stood there. I think they're on a boat for some reason. And they're all just wearing these fabulous sweatshirts with the Thames logo on it. And says, hey, ITV's back. I don't know where those damn sweatshirts are now. Why have I never seen one of them turn up on eBay? Should we get in contact with Brian Murphy and ask him if he's still got You couldn't afford it, mate. No. Is this an appropriate time to mention the ladder? Yes. Well, actually, could you explain to me what demarcation is, just to refresh my brain? Demarcation, basically, is when the union has an agreement with management to say specific worker does specific job. And in order to prevent any situation where you know numbers are reduced and people are asked to sort of multitask and so on with a view to cutting the number of employees, demarcation is very strictly enforced. And so if your job is, for example, VT output, then you can't just be asked by management, would you also mind just sort of helping out doing a bit of the the film editing tonight because we're a bit sort of short-staffed. The union would kick off at that. And potentially that situation could actually lead to an everybody out walkout. I think the Doctor Who story is robot, but don't quote me on that. It's mentioned in one of the extras on the DVDs. There's a ladder that crops up in a number of different places in this Doctor Who story. And that's because there was a demarcation dispute about who had to move this ladder. And nobody could move the ladder until it had been decided, so the ladder had to stay there lest there be a strike. This happened in 1979. After ITV's been knocked out, there's a demarcation dispute over at the BBC uh, towards the end of 1979 over which union <laughs> had jurisdiction over the play school clock. Who gets to move the clock? Who has to move the clock? I would say that's actually a more pointed question than who governs Britain. The day we're recording this, on Twitter we've seen lots of people saying the next BBC Doctor Who animation will be the story Sharda. Sharda was a victim of this strike. The first of three studio blocks were recorded. I think all the pre-filming had been done and the other two studio blocks didn't happen i think possibly maybe one of them was knocked out by the strike and then the strike ended and doctor who was not high enough on the pecking order to get rushed into studio space i think that's what the strike is best known for even in the non-telefantasy community it's the strike that killed the doctor who story just to mention quickly in passing and this is thanks to some lovely yorkshire continuity uploaded by sid n on youtube an ITN dispute, which meant there was no national news on ITV for a week in November of 1981, meant that Yorkshire once replaced the national news with an excerpt from Dumbo. And nobody noticed the difference. Thank you. Dear news headlines, please find and close. <laughs> 1983. We're going to have a bit of funny business here because we're going to have a piece of industrial action which isn't, and yet is going to have maximum impact, particularly for fans of Coronation Street. So, how do you have disruption 
and yet not actually have industrial action per se. Over to Corypedia again. With regard to the episode that was about to go out on Monday the 14th of 1983 and had been heavily trailed in advance. This episode was scheduled to be transmitted in the programme's usual time slot at half past seven. And the week's episodes were given greater than usual amount of publicity in preparation for the Ken Barlow, Deirdre Barlow, Mike Baldwin love triangle story that was reaching its conclusion. However, the EETPU, which was the electrical union, whose staff handled electronics for the ITV companies, decided to hold a meeting to discuss a pay rise which had been given to a foreman without union knowledge. And they chose the scheduled transmission time of this episode for the meeting. All 105 electricians at Granada Television joined in the meeting, switching off the equipment beforehand as they claimed it would be incorrect for it to be left unattended. And consequently, ITV in the northwest of England was blacked out and the remainder of the country was unable to broadcast Coronation Street. Now, what was your preference till... Because we know this basically because there's an excellent piece of continuity from Transdiffusion on YouTube in which they have not just the resumption of programmes from Granada that evening with Charles Foster explaining the situation, but also we've got alternative continuity from both HTV and from Central. Now... If you'd had the choice, would you have preferred Shelley or That's Hollywood in place of Corey? That's Hollywood, I think. Oh, interesting. Although, actually, if you'd been in the HTV region, you would have got that as well, because that was what went out in place of modern action. So you were now at 1983, and we're approaching Gary's personal Sergeant Pepper Citizen Ken Gone with the Wind of all industrial action. Come on, Ooh, you love that story. Know. Tell the story. Okay. Well, first of all, I can just mention in passing. 1984, April the 5th, Bill Cotton makes an executive decision due to industrial action. He has decided to just basically shut down BBC One for an entire day because there would be so many live programmes that would be affected that he felt that what was going to be left was just not worth putting out. So consequently, I didn't have Mighty Mouse to watch when I came home from school. I mean, I'm over it now, but at the time it did annoy me. And usually, I'd loved industrial action, but for goodness sake, Mighty Mouse? I mean, how old was that at that time? About 40 years? Wouldn't have killed them to put that on for five minutes, would it? Anyway, 1984, the greatest industrial dispute in the entire history of industrial relations. I won't bore you for too many details, but there are two disputes that happen at Thames TV in the autumn of 84. One of them goes out on the bank holiday Monday, it's last for a week, and is timed for maximum impact because Thames is networking the entire evening to ITV. And this leads to a lovely piece of continuity from the Yorkshire area in which Red First Kyle explains all the substitutions and yet never actually mentions any of the programmes that were originally scheduled. It's a nice move that, it's a nice sleight of hand. Get your attention away from what you're missing out on and focus on Britain's top comedy show Duty Free instead. So, after the resumption of programming, another dispute at Thames takes them off the air again This time, they're off the air for just over two weeks. And this is seen as a bit of a turning point because in this particular instance, management decides to go in and run the show themselves. And they put together a schedule, unashamedly populist, using material in the can. And at the end of the two weeks of that service, an agreement is reached with the union to return to normality. But it meant basically that Thames could keep going, keep add revenue coming in and so on. What matters more than anything, though, with regard to that, is that the Thames dispute was affecting schools programmes. And unusually, when schools programmes weren't going out, nothing would go out. So a caption would be broadcast and it would say, look, seeing and doing, for example, isn't on today. Next programme will be on at 11.39, how we used to live, whatever. Now, I've been enjoying this dispute at home. 
half term, time to go back to school. And my primary teacher, as arranged, has decided to take us all through to the gymnasium to see seeing and doing. But hang on a second, because there's some precocious little git who strides up to the desk and says, excuse me, Mrs. Nisbet, I think you'll find that due to industrial action by members of the ACTT union in London, I don't know if I actually said that entirely, but I explained that there'd be no seeing and doing that day. I wish I actually had said that. That would be fabulous if I'd come out of all that. And Mrs. Nisbet very politely said, that's very interesting, Gary. Well, what we'll do, we'll go through anyway, just in case, because clearly I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. This is just some nonsense I've made up. We all troop through to the gymnasium, we switch on the TV, guess what happens at 11.19am? Nothing happens, because there ain't any scene and doing, because I was right. If I'm absolutely honest, I think that that was the, the peak of my achievements. I don't think I've ever actually bettered that. I do have to tell you, Gary had his head kicked in at school that day. Not in the playground, in the staff room. <laughs> <laughs> you don't mess with Mrs Nesbitt. A couple of last things about that particular dispute before we have our big finale, which fits the avatar of the episode in question. On one occasion during this particular dispute, Thames was supplying the weekend news to LWT on Friday evenings at this time. Of course, they couldn't do this. And so LWT actually substituted the Thames weekend news with an edition of the Smurfs. And nobody noticed the difference. Dear Dead Ringers, <laughs> finding closed. <laughs> no, if you want to really drill down, you can. You, there must be some sort of satirical joke about little blue men or something like that who are wandering around confused and not really knowing what they're doing. Oh, but we don't mean the Brexit negotiating team. Hey, there you go. Finally, on this topic, I have no evidence for this. I have not found any evidence for this, but I'm going to keep on looking until I find it or I'm going to falsify it on Wikipedia. I am as convinced as I can be that STV substituted an edition of The Sooty Show for an episode of the hapless American Happy Days spin-off, Johnny Loves Chachi. Again, no evidence for this, but it happened. Trust me. Well, if we're just going to do that, okay, I'm pretty sure that they once pulled an episode of Dog Tanning and the Three Musker Hounds and showed threads in its place. <laughs> but that wasn't just industrial action, that was just somebody having a laugh. <laughs> Before we get to our conclusion, just to, again, put this into context, I mentioned about the, the, the height of the trade union influence and powers were during the post-war consensus. Now, obviously, Margaret Thatcher comes to power in 1979. Between 1980 and 1993, there were six acts of parliament which gradually restricted the union's ability to be able to undertake industrial action. Probably the most significant of these was the Trade Union Act of 1984, which meant that trade unions now had to hold a ballot before calling a strike. Also, secondary actions such as, for example, sympathy strikes were outlawed. The impact on all of that basically meant that you couldn't really have a situation such as the ITB strike of 79, for example, and you also couldn't really have lightning strikes. You couldn't really have situations where programs could just come off the air and be replaced by a chalk written sign. However, there was going to be one last big sort of hurrah for all this kind of thing. Tilt. If 1979 was like the grand concept album of industrial action, 1987 is like the perfect 45 single. Earlier on, I did a bit of a downer. Let's just do a little bit of a downer again. On screen, this is the most fun. Off screen, this is people being fired just for striking. But anyway, one morning in 1987, my mum decides to wake me up too early, earlier than I need to be to get the bus for school. Because 
she thought I might like to watch Batman because TVAM is there. But instead of doing its usual shtick, they're just showing an episode of Batman with Adam West. Now, why would they be doing such a thing? With such a, a popular concoction of lighthearted items on the ever summary set, why would they suddenly start showing some duff old nonsense like Batman all of a sudden? Well, go on, tell the story. Tell the industrial side of it. There is a dispute with regards to manning levels between the ACTT and the TVA management. And Bruce Gingell, who has been out of the country, comes back to find the management planning to close the station for a day because ACTT staff are going on strike. And his response is, nope, that ain't happening. Instead, he makes phone calls to fellow personnel in the television industry, gets hold of prints of old shows such as Happy Days, Flipper, and I still maintain the somewhat sinister Nanny and the Professor, and proceeds to air these along with whatever studio-based news that they can concoct with the management running the gallery. Gingell himself as director. And instead of this simply being a 24-hour exercise, the strikers are locked out, and then four months later they are dismissed. Now, over time, and this runs over Christmas time as well, the hapless sort of makeshift programming gets slightly more ambitious as time goes on, but it's still management trying to run the show, and so you've got all manner of nonsense going on, such as, for example, episodes of Batman running with the insert commercial here slide intact. Sometimes half a story going out with the other half not airing, sometimes the second part of a story going out before the first half, and so it is claimed, although it has been disputed, Flipper running backwards. And famously, this actually caused ratings to go up at DVAM. Indeed it did. There is some continuity on YouTube from Christmas Eve 1987, and this is basically the most ambitious programme that they've staged up until this point, so they've actually got like guests and so on in the studio. One of whom we don't talk about anymore, thanks to Operation U-Tree. Yeah, I was going to I think this, yeah. mention it just so that people don't go looking on YouTube and then go, oh. So we have our guests such as Jimmy Greaves, who is previewing the, the Christmas lineup on ITV, and then mentions that in place of what they would have been doing on Christmas morning, instead, they're going to be showing a lot of old tat from Disney which is, on the face of it, is supposed to be a Christmas entertainment extravaganza and in practice is actually some puff piece promotional nonsense which the IBA criticised TVM over for being nothing more than just effectively a glorified infomercial. When they actually play the clip of this, shall we say entertainment, that's going to be going out the next day, when they come out of the clip and Greaves is trying to speak and can't be heard, there's a voice that's saying, Participating advertisers of the Walt Disney World Very Merry Christmas Parade include, and they managed to just cut it off just before they started naming names, I don't know, Ronco and Mercedes Benz and so on. But at one point they had the guests on the sofa having to effectively sort of try and make themselves be heard by makeshift microphones which were planted in the sofa because they had run out of radio mics. So in the end, of course, industrial action it becomes few and far between. There are still instances of disputes these days. By and large, I think it's probably not an oversimplification to say that most of the disputes you see in TV these days tend to affect the BBC. And there have been instances involving Bechtu and the NUJ at various points. 
over the years and you can see examples of them on youtube usually over management or sometimes like relief news readers will be doing the bits and pieces themselves and the news bulletins have been truncated but the era of television simply coming to a halt or actual black screens or substitute programming and what have you on a regular basis it's pretty much come to an end till i've saved one little item for the end i haven't put it on the notes i thought you quite like this there are quite a few instances over the years of news programs say for example the nine o'clock news being blacked sometimes it might be as a result of nuj action sometimes it might be because nuj staff were having a meeting and so then you know the nine o'clock news for example couldn't run this was the situation on one occasion in November of 1977. Rather than run a blank screen or a caption, some bright spark at the BBC decided to fill the 25 minutes with 1950s BBC interlude films. Marvellous! Wouldn't that just be wonderful? That's the kind of thing you'd actually pick up the phone and tell somebody about if you suddenly switched on and found the cat playing with the ball of wool and the potter's wheel and so on. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't know this, but I pretty much bet the farm on the newspapers, the Radio Times, having letters from people actually saying that this was a significant improvement and could we not have this more often? Oh, but that's just contrarianism. So I hope that you've enjoyed this edition. I hope it wasn't too dry. It's quite a broad topic to get to grips with, but... I hope you can see that for some of us oddballs, that this kind of thing, it's a change from the norm. It's different. It's something unusual. I think the one thing this has taught me is it's good to be flexible. So I'm not going to tell anybody what we're doing next week, just in case we have to suddenly change plans. Shouldn't bind ourselves. By the way, I don't know if anybody noticed, we mentioned it on Twitter, after we did those two things about pop movies. Uh, we did a show on Mixcloud where we played some of the songs from the movies we talked about. Mixcloud.com forward slash, I think, sitcom club. Or the sitcom club, just to be confusing. I'll put Jaffa Cake Jukebox into Google. Or Jaffa Cake Jukebox is hosted on Podnos. Go to podnos.com. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, Jaffa's for Proust. You can follow us on Facebook, Jaffa Cakes for Proust. And there we'll update you on all manner of things that are to come. In the meantime, you can hear all of our previous shows. I think we've actually got we've got over 30 of them now in the Jaffa Cakes archive alone, not to mention all the sitcom clubs at podnose.com. So, from myself, Gary, Tilt, who have you been? I've been myself as always. This has been Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Everybody in! Everybody in!